Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Managing hip pain can be challenging for numerous reasons. The potential referral sources, complexity of the joint and surrounding structures, as well as the fact that as a weight-bearing joint, sometimes our patients have occupational demands that, that make rehabilitation particularly challenging. Thankfully, we have Dr. Marcy Harris-Hayes here to help us sort through how to improve our treatment of hip-related groin pain. Dr. Marcy Harris-Hayes is professor at the Program in Physical Therapy and Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Washington University School of Medicine. She is a clinical investigator with a research focus on developing and investigating rehabilitation strategies for people with musculoskeletal hip pain. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I am Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland. And so, Dr. Harris-Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. We have a ton to cover today, so I'm looking forward to sitting down and diving right into it. Well, I, you know, I am truly honored to be asked. Um, I have been listening to the podcast, and it sounds like a ton of fun. So I was really, really pleased to get get the get the call. Well, Chelsea, do you want to uh, break down the plan for us? The plan today is to take a dive into hip-related groin pain and really focus on what interventions are best. Where can rehabilitation clinicians make the biggest impact? This is included in a lot of your body of work, but we're focusing on three main papers that we thought had the most clinical and clear takeaways. But first, let's go ahead and define just the hip-related groin pain, chronic hip pain. What diagnoses are we looking at here? <laughs> that is the question of the hour, I'll tell you. That's been one of my, my <laughs> biggest challenges in, in writing grants and papers is just what do we call what do we call this? And and we've used a lot of terms like prearthritic hip disease, intraarticular hip disease, non-arthritic hip disease. Um, it, it's really hard to find a, a good umbrella term, but in 2015, this Doha agreement was a, was published, and a group of experts got together and and kind of helped us come come up with a definition for hip related groin pain, and it really is just what it sounds like. So it's it's pain in the groin region that we think is originating from the hip joint structures themselves, and so it was a way to try to differentiate from like an adductor strain or an iliopsoas um, related type pain. The challenge is a lot of those pains are hard to differentiate, so um, it, it can be quite a, quite a challenge. But that's basically the definition: pain in the groin that we think is coming from a hip joint structure. And I guess I should put the disclaimer in there that I definitely want to do enough testing that I know that it's the hip joints the problem or a surrounding tissue that's the problem. If it's something being referred from the lumbar spine, you know, we need to know that as well. So I, I don't want the message to be that I don't care about tissues and I never do any source testing. I definitely do that. Um, but when it comes to rehabilitation, I'm, I'm more concerned about the big picture. That reminds me of the episode we did on shoulder special tests with the opinion paper with Jeremy Lewis and Paul Salam, where they wrote that it's more about identifying the motion and function that's painful versus trying to use special tests to identify the structure that might be causing pain. 
Yeah, that's really the, that is like the big question of my research agenda right there. You've just kind of summed it up and you're absolutely right. I do think there's a lot of parallels between the hip joint and the shoulder. Uh, and and I, I think later we'll probably talk about the consensus papers and the consensus paper that was uh, the lead author was uh, uh, Dr. Ryman points out some of those very same issues of the clinical test for the hip joint. You know, a lot of the tests are very sensitive. If you have a painful hip, it's going to hurt. Um, but it doesn't really tell you what's going on in the joint. Right, right. I think I can make everybody like cringe on a fittier. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, okay. So let's dive into the first article, which is a um, 2018 JOSPT article, represent. Um, so reduced hip adduction is associated with improved function after movement pattern trading in young people with chronic hip joint pain. So you found basically just that, that reduced hip adduction is associated with improved function after movement pattern training. So can you just hit the highlights of that article and just kind of summarize it? Because that's kind of the basis for where we're going. This is kind of like the impairment level kind of work that we're going to talk about later when we talk about treatment. So can you just hit the highlights of that article and then like how you came to these findings? Sure. So this, this is kind of the second paper out of this study. We did a proof of concept study to assess movement pattern training. We wanted to know, will people do it? Do they understand it? Um, can we change movement? People enrolled and they were randomized either into the, the treatment group or they waited for six weeks and then they got the treatment later. So we had, uh, it was a small study. So 28 patients um, aged 18 to 40 had to have a chronic hip joint pain problem. We assessed kinematics with 3D motion analysis, strength testing, and we also had MRI to get bony morphology as well. Very short treatment program, six treatments over six weeks, um, and it included both movement pattern training and strengthening. So we had both, both of those concepts in there, but we really emphasized patients' ability to be independent. So we would actually assess, are they doing their exercises correctly? Are they performing their movements correctly? And the big study, of course, we just wanted to know, can it be done? Do people get better? But this analysis, we were really interested in factors that might be associated with trick treatment prognosis. Those who got better, you know, what might be associated with that? And just as you said in the title, we found that those who were able to reduce their hip adduction motion more had greater improvements in their patient reported outcome measure. And the measure we used in that study was the modified Harris HIP score, which has some limitations in this patient population. It does have a bit of a ceiling effect, but if you have a limitation in that score, that's a pretty significant limitation at the age of 20. And it, and it was interesting. I went, you know, I went back and, and reviewed the paper uh, after we talked about doing this podcast. And I was reminded at some of the other kind of sub findings that we found and some of the things in people, what I had forgotten about, but was very interesting is those who were able to reduce their hip adduction. Also, there was associations with the hip disability and outcome score subscales. So it was across a number of patient reported outcome measures. And those, those folks also had more hip adduction at baseline. So it, it's starting to kind of tell a picture of, can we identify these folks early on and maybe match this treatment to them early on? Can you talk a bit about how you measured the hip adduction in these studies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, it, and that's, that's some of the things that's different across our studies. So in this study, we actually did use a 3D motion analysis. So we had, um, for that study, we had an eight camera system, I believe. So markered people up. 
um, with a pretty sophisticated model and then used a single leg squat task. We collected a number of other tasks, but that's the one that we focused on first. And we measured during the single leg squat on the affected limb at the, at the lowest level of the squat, what was their hip adduction position? Wonderful. And then maybe I'm jump I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but can you chat about whether or not 3D motion analysis is necessary for clinicians to to measure that hip adduction? That's a really good point. Definitely clinicians can identify when someone's going into more of a hip adducted position. We published an earlier paper looking at the reliability and validity of that, and clinicians can definitely do that. Even non-physical therapists without previous training, but have been trained can do it. So you could actually train a soccer coach if you wanted to, to be able to do that. But you're right. I think it, well, we can talk about that second study, which supports, you know, exactly what you just said. <laughs> Let me segue you into that for you. Perfect. <laughs> okay. So you have this finding that the movement pattern training and the strengthening leads to decreased hip adduction during dynamic tasks, which leads to improved function. So keeping that in mind. So the next article from the 2020 um, it's from 2020 in the BMJ Open Sport and Exercise Medicine. Movement pattern training compared with standard strengthening and flexibility among patients with hip-related groin pain. Um, and you're looking at just the results of a pilot multicenter randomized clinical trial. In, in this one, you took patients with hip-related groin pain and gave them either a movement pattern training or strength and flexibility training. So what were the results of that? So that was a little bit bigger study, still small, 46 people. We expanded the age a little bit, 15 to 40 in that one. And Dan, we did 2D kinematics. <laughs> so we used a video camera and measured from there. Um, also measured strength, but we extended the treatment in this, in this study. So 10 visits over 12 weeks. And we were mm. really interested in if you separated the strengthening, the traditional strengthening flexibility exercises from the movement pattern training, would we see differences there? So that was the main question. I'm, I'm just really interested in how different physical therapy approaches affect pain problems. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. Absolutely. It's what we deal with every day. Yeah. So, so interestingly, so we, uh, again, 12 weeks of treatment after treatment, they came back and we did testing again, both groups improved in their patient reported outcomes and in their strength measures. So to me already, that is something to celebrate because a few years ago, it was still thought that if you had F FAI or femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, physical therapy was contraindicated. Those were words that I actually heard at conferences. I would say even as late as about five years ago. So to me, that to me, just showing that rehabilitation can help people improve their symptoms is 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 a big deal. Yeah. Even a small sample. So again, they got better patient reported outcomes. They got better in their strength measures. Not huge leaps and bounds, but it's just twelve weeks of treatment. So, but but the only thing that was different between the groups was the movement pattern. So only those in the movement pattern training group changed their movement. Those in the strengthening did not. That's not too surprising. There's been some previous work in patellofemoral pain. Um, Brian Norin, Rich Willie, who've shown something similar that you can that strength doesn't necessarily change the the movement pattern if you don't train the train the movement pattern. That is I mean again that's incredibly practical takeaways. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. We also got um outcome measures at 1 year and at that 1 year we found that 
individuals had maintained their improved status. So again, this is another big, big deal for rehabilitation. People got better after treatment and they maintained that improvement over time. The patients in the strengthening group had a small decline in the WHOOS sports subscale. It wasn't statistically significant, but in a larger sample that, that might be. And so we're interested in kind of pursuing that moving forward. That's awesome. Those are great takeaways. One year out. So and that was against both groups. So both the movement group kept it and the, and the strengthening group kept it. Yeah. So to kind of repeat Dan's foreshadowing earlier, basically people with hip pain problems can get better with rehabilitation, whether it's movement pattern training or strengthening. But if, if they have a movement impairment that you see and it's associated with their pain problem, then you should go right ahead and target that movement pattern. And if you wanted to treat somebody that didn't have an observable movement pattern impairment, you still could use movement pattern training because you're going to get the strengthening of benefits and you're going to get the patient reported outcome improvements. So I'm sure there are listeners right now that are saying, what is this movement pattern training? Can you tell us more about it? So with the movement pattern training, the, the primary movement impairment that we focused on, again, was this hip adduction motion, which would, could be either the, the femur moving inwardly or the pelvis dropping. If someone demonstrated like excessive hip extension during standing or, or something that we would address those little factors as well. But the primary goal was hip adduction. Everyone received training in daily tasks. So how do you sit? How do you sleep? How do you drive, go up and down stairs, things that you do in your typical day. Um, and then we also, at their first visit, we asked them to identify up to, up to five things that you have, that you want to participate in, but you're having difficulty participating in because of your hip pain. And so these were typically fitness activities. So running, cycling, swimming, taekwondo, boxing, um, or work-related activities. So sitting at work, or I have to stand for a long period of time. So things that were important to the patient themselves. And so, and then the training was provided specifically to those tasks, and their home exercise program was practicing those tasks using that, that movement pattern, using that kind of modified movement pattern. I love that the movement pattern training is so easily transferable to not only daily activities, but things that are so things that are important to the patient. Can you can you talk to the listeners about how you dosed and then progressed these exercises, uh, particularly in terms of the movement pattern training? Sure. So, so first, this is an open access paper and the appendices have all of that information. So, so PTs can go directly there and has a weight, probably too much information. But basically for the progression, we used basic overload principles. So if a patient was able to perform, we'll use sit to stand as an example, they could perform sit to stand up to 30 times with their newly instructed movement pattern, then we would use TheraBand to provide some resistance to that. So even though we, we focused on movement pattern training, there was still an overload principle that resulted in that strengthening that we saw at the end of the study. I love that you made it so patient specific that the fact that they could choose their five activities is incredible. And I do have to comment that there are many pages of indices with exactly the exercises with photos. And that is an incredibly valuable resource. Thank you for putting that into a research paper. Um, Cause that's always, I'm like, well, what strengthening did you do? Like what position were they in? I'm always fascinated by that. So thank you for including that. It just, just for the sake of a podcast, you summarize the movement pattern training, and then can you just kind of summarize some of the specifics of the strength and flexibility that you initiated here? 
Yeah, so we focused on strengthening of the lower extremity. So basic strengthening in all um, six motions. So flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, and the two rotations, internal and external. And again, progress them with a basic overload principle with those exercises. And again, they're kind of spelled out um, in the appendices. In developing the protocol for the strengthening and flexibility approach, we used uh, evidence. uh, So papers that have been uh, published related to hip pain problems, as well as consumer guidelines that can be found on the websites of the uh, American Physical Therapy Association, APTA, as well as the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, AOS. So we, we use those guidelines as well. Finally, you collaborated with a number of other experts to come up with consensus statements for managing hip-related pain published in BJSM in 2018. The article has five recommendations for clinical practice and five for research. Can you touch on the most important takeaways from this article? Right. So, so if I could just plug these four papers. So this was an amazing group. I feel so fortunate that I got to be a part of it. Uh, but there's four consensus papers. All of them are, are uh, open access, so you can go find them. But basically, it looks at classification. That's the Ryman paper I mentioned earlier. What should what should we be measuring in the clinical in the clinic? So uh, what's the physical um, exam should look like, as well as in research, patient reported outcomes, which are the best ones to use at this time, and then this one that we're talking about related to treatment. I think I, I just want to say up front that the first thing is that we we there's still a lot for us to learn about treatment of hip-related groin pain. But the, the key points for the clinic, uh, from, from the clinical recommendations is number one, exercise-based treatments are highly recommended. So there we do have some moderate level evidence that suggests that if you do exercise in the treatment of uh, hip-related groin pain, that people will improve. And it should be at least three months in duration. Also recommend as clinicians that we be sure to counsel patients on physical activity. And and I would add my personal and also include those things, those functional tasks that patients report having difficulty with. Focus on those. That's what they're most um, interested in and, and will probably be the most adherent with. And then also using kind of shared decision-making strategies. And I think this is an area where physical therapists can be really helpful for the patient. Right now, I think the word on the street is if you have one of these hip pain conditions that you probably will need surgery. And so I think this is really where physical therapists can work with patients and, and show them how they can move differently or get stronger or improve their flexibility and, and can, can manage those symptoms and be able to do their physical activity. So I think that's really key that, that we're educating patients on what it means to have, you know, a bony morphology and abnormality. It, it actually, abnormality is not the right word you should use. We shouldn't call them abnormalities. They're just a shape, right? The hip is a shape. (laughs) I love that. You could have, you could have a shape that's different and you may or may not have pain. So it's not the thing to be focused on. It's more about what you can do with your body that, that can change that. So that was, that was kind of the, the big clinical recommendations. And then for the research, it really is, we just, we definitely need more research. We need rigorous studies looking at different types of treatment. So we know, we know very little about what manual therapy um, can do, what joint mobilization can do. So um, that's a current study we have going on right now. Also, we need to be really rigorous about how we're implementing exercise so that we can understand more about what's the right dosage what's the right type of exercise, what's the right dosage. 
and being sure that we're reporting what we're doing. And so that's that's why you see those crazy appendices in my studies. I'm trying to be as transparent with the the, the, the studies as, as we can. And then finally, we really do need to understand more about comorbidities, social determinants of health. I'm very interested in I think there are also some disparities in this pain population that, you know, most of the literature that you read is in a Caucasian, is in the Caucasian race. And I, I know that these conditions exist across all races and ethnicities. So I think that's another area. That's not in the recommendations. That's a Marcy asterisk <laughs> put on there. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So it, it seems like, so all of these are, it's just like looking at global movement, um, not trying to pick apart a specific diagnosis so that you can look at generally, is it worth it for me to dive into movement? Is it worth it for me to dive into strengthening? And it seems like the answer is yes for both. And this is like a great episode for team PT. Is that a good summarization of the takeaways? I, you know, it really is. And I, it's, I, I think one of my biggest, in the research, we've been focused a lot on the bony morphology. And I do think it's important. I do think it's interesting and it, and it tells us some things, but as physical therapy, I'm coming from the, the, the um, side of the surgeons are going to continue to help us understand that. And what the physical therapist can bring to the table that the surgeons don't have, and they are, they are itching for it. They, they want to know why some of their people do not get better right, after right. surgery. And I think physical therapists have the answer to that, but we've got to do more research in order to see if our theories are true. And so it's this interaction of what the, bo- what the body you come with and how, your bo- how you move your body and what the activities are that you're participating in. And the physical therapists, we're the ones that can treat those the best and that, that we're going to investigate those. These yeah. are such great points. And for listeners right now that want to help spread the word, even on the individual level and really get this out to their community, what are your, what are your recommendations for them? I'm very for, so I'm going to put this out there, but I recognize I'm very fortunate where I work and that this is not easy for a a lot of clinicians. But I think one of the biggest things, particularly if you are in a state where you don't have direct access, is really developing strong relationships with surgeons and primary care physicians and educating them on what you have to offer. I kind of came out of school in the don't dare talk to the surgeon you know, right, don't, right, they're right. busy, you know, and it's just not that way anymore. Uh, like I said, um, surgeons are particularly in the hip joint where they're still having some complications after surgeries. They're looking for partners and allies and how to, to improve their patients. So any kind of opening communication with other healthcare providers is really key. If you have the capability, the access to reach out to kind of community groups, and do some um, educational programming. Um, I think that's another great area. So places that are that could be useful would be like YMCA's, um, gyms, churches. Um, you know, and as you're thinking about different communities, think about commu- you know people of color and different ethnicities that that may not have as easy access to healthcare. So that would be another way. So healthcare pro- other healthcare providers educate them on 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 what we know, and then um, community resources. 
Great advice. Marcy, this was awesome. That was, I mean, that's, that's going to be a really, really great episode. People are going to be able to take something from. So really appreciate that. I hope so. Being a clinician who has stepped into the research world, that that's my main goal is to try to, to help people in the clinic and help patients. So. Absolutely. Dr. Harris Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. And to all of those who are listening, thank you so much as always for listening to JOSPT Insights. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.